Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 24. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to follow along, please do so. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For the reason the people also met him, because they heard he had done these these signs. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that they are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks Greeks among those who had come to the worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and said and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Today we celebrate what is commonly known as a triumphal entry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time, which kind of kicks off all the events leading to the crucifixion of our Lord. And as I was reading through the pertinent passages, as I was in the process of preparing you know, this is one of those times of seeing Christmas and Easter. What can I preach that's different? Because it's kind of the same, you know, you've got the same passage, the same story that's going on. So I was looking at these different passages, and there was something that struck me for the very first time. And I think there's a bigger picture that is often missed here. There's a major shift that takes place at this moment of history to fulfill John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We're going to start with the story of the triumphal entry as Evan read to us in John chapter 12, and then we're going to move to Matthew 21, to the parable of the landowner who planted a vineyard, a parable that Jesus gave just before going into Jerusalem. And then we're going to wrap it up with a couple verses from Ephesians chapter 2 as we look at this event in history as a triumphal entry for us, the rest of the world. The passage that was read for us gives us the very traditionally well-known moment in the life of our Lord when he enters the city of Jerusalem to all the praise and the hosannas of the people who are acclaiming him as a king of Israel, the king and the Messiah. Now, while this on the surface looks like a triumphal day of acclamation, what we might think, you know, this is probably kind of what Jesus was hoping for all of his life. After three years of, of ministry and 33 years on this, uh, on this earth, uh, this is what he, what he deserved. There, people are finally recognizing him for who he really was. But as we well know, because we've often read this passage year after year, the Hosannas died very quickly. By Friday, just a few days later, the people were crying out for Barabbas to be released and the one they had claimed to be king to be crucified. 
So our passage this morning in John 12 was a moment the people, the crowds, were hailing him as king. And he comes into the city to the hosannas and the hallelujahs and the praises of the people of Israel. King Jesus, they're saying, has arrived and, take, and, and uh, he's going to take his throne. Hosanna, they shouted. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And I think at that moment they were actually truly excited with hope and anticipation that the long-awaited Messiah was this one named Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean. He, he had gained a huge reputation during his ministry by doing miracles over the three years, miracles which have been talked about across the land and which have been performed in most of the villages and towns throughout Israel, and it all culminated in the most amazing and spectacular miracle of them all, and that was the raising of Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead four days. This was done only a couple weeks before Passover, so it was fresh on everybody's minds. The news had passed like wildfire what Jesus had done. I think the timing was significant because people from all over the land, lands, were making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, and all these events uh, would have the greatest impact when his resurrection could be very verified by the greatest number of people and where the testimony would spread, begin spreading literally throughout the world. So his triumphal entry was on Monday. But if we were to read earlier in John chapter 12, we find that Jesus came about six days before the Passover, and that puts him in Bethany, and he spent that Sunday with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And there was actually a big supper made for him there in the home of a leper whom he had healed. His name was Simon. And Simon must have had a decent-sized home because um, it would accommodate Jesus, his own family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and all the disciples, they were all traveling together. It was truly a celebration at which no doubt Martha served with love. That was her gifting. And this was when Mary, in verse 3, took a pound of very expensive and fragrant ointment. Scripture tells us that a pound costs a year's wages. That's some expensive perfume. It was a lavish and extravagant expression of her love as she broke that alabaster jar in which it was contained and poured it all over Jesus. The other writers say from head to foot. He was just doused with all this. Can you imagine the fragrance that filled that room? Then she loosened her hair, which was not to be done by any woman of dignity. But she did it and wiped his feet with her hair. Women... Think about that. An amazing treatment of her Lord out of a deep, profound, spiritual love for him. Well, the word got out that Jesus had arrived there in Bethany, and he was the most important and the most popular person of all of Passover. And rightfully so, in God's eyes, since he was the final sacrificial lamb, the lamb without blemish that was going to be sacrificed. But he was a person everybody wanted to see because he had cast out demons. He had healed. He, he had produced food. 
There had never been and never would be anyone like him again. Verse 9 says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, there in Bethany, and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They were curiosity seekers. If they're driving down the highway, we call them rubberneckers, right? Just slowing down to, to look and gawk and see what was going on. But on the other hand, you've got the religious leaders already planning to put poor Lazarus to death. He's going to die a second time. The reason was because of his testimony. Scripture tells us it was so effective that many of the Jews were abandoning the, abandoning the temple religion and were actually believing in Jesus. And the religious rulers couldn't have that. This miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, had this massive impact as a final act of Jesus' public ministry. And the groundswell in Jerusalem is beginning. Thousands upon thousands of people had come, and they were hearing that Jesus was out here. In the meantime, there's a crowd of people that were already at, uh, in, in Bethany trying to get a glimpse of Lazarus, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Now we come to uh, Monday, and verse 12 says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, Jesus knew what was about to happen, and this time, he was going to let it happen. If you remember, time after time during his ministry, the crowds had tried to crown him as king, but each time the crowd, the crowd wanted to force something upon him, he either removed himself from the situation or the crowd was restrained in one way or another. And the reason was, as stated in John 8.20, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But now, here in John 12, verse 23, he tells his, tells his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now it's time. And the reason it's his hour is because it was God's hour. God's chosen time. Now you've got to know that the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin had not planned to kill Jesus then. They didn't want to kill him at a time when the city was overrun with all these people, the, the thousands and thousands of people that had come in, at a time when he was the most popular in his entire ministry, but that's exactly when they were going to crucify him because that's when God had planned his crucifixion. And as he comes to Jerusalem at the end of verse 12, there seems to be two crowds merging together somewhere between Jerusalem and Bethany. You've got the crowd in Jerusalem who is surging. They heard that he's out there. They're, they're, they're heading out. They're surging out to meet him when, uh, when they hear that he's coming. And then you've got the crowd that's already at Bethany uh, following him in. And so you've got this double-sized double crowd meeting somewhere in the middle. Um, and they, they, they picked up the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They began shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. You also remember that as he began coming into Jerusalem, as he began his journey, he, you remember him asking two of his disciples to, to go into to a town and uh, gave them some instructions. Said, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, 
and he will send them right away. So they followed his instructions as they were untying those donkeys, the, the, the donkey and her colt. The owner came out and said, hey, what are you guys doing? And their answer was simple, the Lord needs them. Most scholars believe that the willingness of the man to just let his donkeys go at that point indicates that the owner probably knew the Lord and could very well have been a follower of Jesus as well. So the disciples then brought the donkeys to Jesus, and having put their cloaks on the backs of of them, Jesus chose the colt, the younger one, the foal of the donkey, to ride on and not the mother. Why? Why two donkeys? Well, first of all, the riding of a donkey, as is explained every year at the triumphal entry stories, because that's a symbol of a king coming in peace. Rather than a king coming to wage war, he would be riding on a horse. And that's true, but there's something more that's going on here. One reason there's a donkey and it's cool is because that's what was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. All the prophecies have to be fulfilled. There in Zechariah, says, see, your king comes to you, a righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the word lowly is significant here. Even more significant than the fulfillment of that prophecy is the fact that Jesus was coming into the city in humility, in lowliness. He didn't even ride on the older, more mature animal. He rode the weaker, younger animal. The mature animal was brought along to lead the young colt because a colt would always follow follow its mother. This was a way Jesus could could demonstrate and express his humility that was, that was going to be going, coming his way during, during that week. I think that's actually what Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 2 even. The beginning of his life and the end of his life were both done in total humility. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That was his birth. And verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself a second time by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he came choosing to ride on the foal of the donkey in humbleness, in lowliness. And as he approached the city and the crowd began to gather around him, people spread their garments in front of him and and allowed that, uh, kind of like a red carpet, and they they spread their coats down and allowed that uh, young young donkey to, to ride across, and no doubt they pick up their coats afterwards. And along the way, others cut these palm branches, which were very prevalent in the country um, at the time, and threw them down to make a pathway for their coming king and wave them as well. And if you go back to the Old Testament, um, palm branches are always associated with celebration, always associated with celebrations. They were used as a, to express joy, and this was probably one of the most joyous occasions, moments, certainly in the life of Israel during the time of the Lord, because they, they were expecting some great things out of Jesus at that moment. And in a way, he is officially creating his own coronation. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He won't deny their hosannas. In fact, we know a little later, he would say, if these people don't cry out hosanna, even the rocks are going to cry out. It's his time. 
Imagine this coronation parade of thousands of people. It was estimated from a census of that time that there may have been between two and two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. So there, no doubt, were thousands of people out there to greet him and march along with him. This celebration is actually a foreshadowing of a royal celebration in, in, uh, in heaven. We've been fascinated in the studies that we've been doing during our spiritual growth class about, this, about what's taking place in Revelation. But this is this sees a scene that's depicting that's depicted using palm branches. In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, uh, John writes this: After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're hailing the conquering hero. And that's what they're doing here. At least that's what their expectations were. Their Redeemer has arrived. Deliverance from Roman domination must be imminent. And they're crying out, Hosanna. They're quoting Psalm 118 that Nancy read earlier this morning, which is a conqueror's psalm. And the word Hosanna literally means save now. And they call him Son of David there in that psalm, which was a direct reference to his kingship. And they're referring to him as the Messiah because they, they knew that Old Testament Samuel had said that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. So they're seeing him as their king, their savior, their deliverer, their Messiah. This was all going on in their mind, and they were praising and shouting. Their hope and their expectation is that at any moment, the power over death that he exhibited with Lazarus, this miracle power will now be exercised over Rome. But the crowd, as we know, was fickle. This is all an adrenaline rush, getting caught up in the excitement from the crowd, looking and hoping for another miracle, hoping for a military coup. But even the Pharisees were angry and worried about what was happening. And verse 19 says that the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That struck me this time as I was reading through this. That statement was a beginning of what struck me in this, this whole triumphal entry narrative. Look, the world has gone after him. Isn't that what God wanted in the very beginning? For the world to go after him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And up to this point, in a sense, religiously speaking, the Jews were the world. But they rejected him completely, quickly. Initially, you know, just listening to them and seeing their actions, you would have thought that they believed in him. They were shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They actually called him king of Israel. All words. All words, but there was no heart change. It was still all about themselves, making our life, make our life better by overtaking Rome. It was selfish. Paul calls it idolatry, idolatry of self. 
How do we know that? Well, if we jump ahead a couple of days to John chapter 19, it tells us that Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowd to these same people. And in verse 14, he says, Behold your king. I mean, they're just calling king of Israel. And the crowds cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? You were just shouting, He was your king. The chief priests, the Jewish chief priests, answered, We have no king but Caesar. Total rejection. I see the triumphal entry as a catalyst, the turning point of Christ to reach the rest of the world. Now this is where I want to take you back quickly to Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus gives his last parable because it's directly related to what just took place. At the end of Matthew 21, starting with verse 33, we read this. Listen to another parable, Jesus said. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants. This refers back to the prophets of the Old Testament. He sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. The tenants, of course, is referring to the people of Israel. But when the tenants saw the son, they, saw, they, they said to each other, Ha ha, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, he asked the people. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? (laughs) Isn't that kind of interesting? They're always in the scriptures, right? Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, listen, this is Jesus' conclusion. I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. This must have been one of the hardest things that Jesus had to say to them. He loved his chosen people, but it was their choice, and they rejected him. Luke 19 tells us that Jesus wept over them. It broke his heart as he approached Jerusalem, coming into the city for the last time, and saw the city. He wept over and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Why? Because, Jesus said, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Therefore, back to Jesus' Conclusion in the, in the parable, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Who are those people? It's the rest of the world. It's the rest of the world, the Gentiles, all who were not Jews. 
That's why the next verse, verse 20 in our passage in John 12, struck me for the very first time. It almost seems out of place, a random inclusion in the narrative. I know I've read these three verses, but they, they, they just seem kind of insignificant. I, you know, why is that even included? In light of all that was going on that day, I, I didn't even remember reading these verses. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is taking place with thousands of people shouting and waving palm branches and disciples were befuddled. And starting with verse 16, before we get to that passage, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered all these things and were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. Then we have this fascinating side story, but I think massive in its implication, because I believe that this insignificant side story is the beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus' parable that he had just given. Verse 20, Now there were certain Greeks, Gentiles, among those who came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Remember Jesus' words at the end of his last parable? Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. I believe right here, folks, is the beginning of the church. That's why I entitled the message a triumphal entry for us, for the rest of the world, for the Gentiles. It doesn't tell us the rest of the story, interestingly enough about those Gentiles that wanted to see Jesus, but I would bet anything that Jesus stopped and talked with them. In John 6, 37, he had said, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And they said, We want to see Jesus. He wasn't going to say, No, I'm not going to see you now. I'm busy. And Here were Gentiles coming to him. Do you remember who the first convert was after Jesus died? It's a centurion at the foot of the cross, a Gentile. He saw all that took place, the whole process. He heard all the words of Jesus uttered on the cross, and he made an amazing confession. He confessed Jesus as Lord, and God recorded his statement for a reason. It's there for a reason. In Mark 15, 39, surely this man is the Son of God. The centurion believed. Gentiles coming to Jesus. And in Acts, we read about the disciples being in the upper room after Jesus had ascended back to heaven and the Holy Spirit came down upon them. And it says this, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Now the word tongues here is a Greek word meaning other language and dialect spoken by people. They spoke in these other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And there, and there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they said, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that each of us hear them in our native uh, uh, language? Listen, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, the northern part of Africa, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. We're talking uh, Gentiles. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. What was the result? In verse 41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They didn't stop there. They continued preaching. And every day, verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Remember the Pharisees in consternation there in John 12? Look, the world has gone after them. Yes, that's the plan. It's God's plan. Because of the rejection by the Jews, Jesus' journey into Jerusalem that day turned into a triumphal entry for you and for I, for the rest of the world. How exactly? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and 12, where Paul describes what the Gentiles used to be. Up to this point, the Gentiles experienced two types of separation, two types of alienation. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that formerly, before you came to Christ, formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision. So the first alienation or separation was, was a social separation because of the animosity that had existed between the Jews and Gentile for hundreds of years. They were despised because they were those horrible, uncircumcised people, those Gentiles. But Christ changed that at the cross, bringing the two together. We just saw that in Colossians 3 where Paul said here, in Christ, in the sanctified life, in the changed, transformed life, there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no circumcision or uncircumcision. God te- dealt with that separation and alienation at the cross. Wiped it out. It's gone. But the second and more significant type of separation was spiritual. Um, because the Gentiles, as a people, were cut off from God in five different ways. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's pretty heavy. They were without Christ. You were separate from Christ. Not only were they without Christ, they were without citizenship. They had been excluded from citizenship from Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. Everybody else was excluded. And up to this point, they had been on the outside of that. They were also without God's covenants. Paul says they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. God had promised to give his people a land, a priesthood, a people, a nation, a kingdom, a coming king and Messiah, and ultimately eternal life in heaven. The Gentiles had been aliens and strangers to all of that without any of those promises. They were also without hope. They had no hope because they hadn't been given any of the divine promises. The Gentiles didn't have that because ultimately, Paul says, they were even 
without God. Folks, do you realize that we would have all been part of that? Without Christ, without citizenship, without God's promises, without hope, without God Himself, if it hadn't been for the cross. Listen to the next few verses there in Ephesians 2. Just let them sink in. But now, in Christ Jesus, there's the answer. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and his commandments and regulations. His purpose, Paul says, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus wiped out all that hostility. He wiped out all those barriers. He wiped out the alienation and the uh, separation from himself all at the cross. The triumphal entry of Jesus Jerusalem became a triumphal entry for us. The crowds of that day were shouting, Hosanna! With no understanding. But we understand And that needs to be our shout. That needs to be our song. Hosanna, save now. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, we lift your name on high. Hearts full of praise. Be exalted, O Lord, my God. Hosanna in the highest. Father, thank you for your triumphal entry for us. Thank you for your salvation for us. Once outside of your chosen people, now one with your chosen people. Thank you that Jesus was willing, not my will, but yours be done. Thank you for your tremendous, tremendous love for us. And Jesus was willing in humbleness, in lowliness, to ride the meekest of animals as he traveled into Jerusalem that day knowing how humiliated he was going to be by your own people how broke his heart but he did it for the greater victory he did it for us we can rejoice now and sing together hosanna because of what you accomplished so many years ago and i pray that that will continue to be our song of praise to you in jesus name amen